0: This is week two of our Lent series, Open Your Eyes, where we're sitting with Matthew 23, in which Jesus proclaims these seven woes, this mixed cry of compassion, lament, and warning against Israel's religious leadership over what he calls religious hypocrisy. That is, spiritual blindness developed when we, the people of God, use religion to mask our brokenness, developing blind spots about who we are and how we're impacting others, failing to practice what we preach and betraying the values we're called to hold and the ones we profess. But underneath these challenges, what we're seeing is that there is this invitation to open our eyes to these religious hypocrisies, not for the purpose of shame, but in order to heal from them, to let Jesus take them from us, and to embrace Jesus's vision of kingdom integrity, that is crucial for entering and representing his kingdom as we're called to. Now, to begin today, I want to share three of my earliest experiences of church that I believe relate to our well. As a child, I first went to a Southern Baptist church, which started great. I loved the teacher of the kids' ministry there, and we experienced so much good from that community for years. But eventually, I graduated from his group to the next age group. I was probably nine or 10 years old at the time. And I'll never forget asking my new teacher about an Asian friend and her telling me in great detail about the torture and the burning hellfire that he was going to experience. And y'all, I was terrified. It traumatized me. And my mom was like, peace. God bless her for that. And we left. We kind of bounced around and ultimately ended up at an early emerging church. One that by design presented itself as open and hip, but behind the scenes was deeply broken. And though, at least early on, I connected strongly with the youth leader there, eventually this church broke me too. You see, fear and shame were pillars of the teaching I received from various adults in this community. I was taught about being sent to an eternal fiery hell a lot, and I mean a lot, almost exclusively as it related to sexuality. One adult told me that Noah's story was about how God hated me and was going to crush me at any moment if I had lustful thoughts or desires. I was also taught by a different adult that dinosaurs weren't real, that God had made their fossils to test my faith. And if I didn't believe the earth was 6,000 years old, then I didn't believe the Bible was true or that Jesus was true and I would burn in hell forever. I wish I was joking. At a retreat, I was literally peer pressured at a pool into getting baptized. I had no idea what baptism was, but I didn't want to be the only one not to do it. So I got baptized. But that's a story for another day. Ultimately, at the age of 14, I got into legal trouble over a dumb, harmless mistake involving a knife and a bee, which I've shared about here before. And I was in a pretty bad place. I was afraid. I was in tears. And instead of comforting me, Many of these adults accused me of being possessed by Satan. Another accused me of corrupting other kids, of being a bad apple. Uh, But they prayed for me, so thank God for that. I was a number to them. Once saved and that box got checked off, they kind of didn't really care what happened to me next. You know, once I wasn't going to hell in their eyes, the rest of my life was of little consequence especially if I was a troublemaker. And ultimately, the church collapsed when the pastor got caught in his own religious hypocrisy. But well before that, I was done. I was over it. I liked dinosaurs. And if these people represented God, I wanted nothing to do with their God. So I moved into my third phase, as it relates to the church, militant atheism. But even though I didn't believe in God, I still carried the brokenness, fear, shame, pain, spiritual trauma, the seething rage and distrust of Christians for years. And what's ironic in hindsight is I think they were actually trying to help me. It doesn't excuse it or what they did, but they were just blind to their brokenness and how their invitation of Jesus got filtered through it and poured onto me. Which is what Jesus' second woe is all about—how the good calling to invite people into the kingdom can get distorted and abused by blindness and hypocrisy. But first, let's briefly return to the first woe because it builds off the sec- or the, because the second one builds off of it. Recall, Jesus began this section with, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And as we looked at last week, Israel's religious leadership have refused to enter the kingdom of heaven, and as leaders, they are keeping others from entering it too. And we need to sit with this. What is the kingdom of heaven, and what does it mean to not enter it? And I want to play a video from this group, The Bible Project, to begin setting this up. Let's roll that clip.
1: So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains, but my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart, and about how God is bringing them back together once again. The renewed overlap of heaven and earth. This is what Jesus is
0: all about. His teachings, healings, forgiveness, everything, proclaimed, the reunion of heaven and earth, human space and God's space that was taking place here and now through him. That God was establishing his kingdom and his will over earth, reclaiming his world through Jesus. And it isn't just what happens when we die. It's about right now experiencing the renewed overlap of heaven and earth through Jesus's upside down values of peace, love, mercy, bringing the future, fully realized kingdom to the present through how we live now. As Jesus prayed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, not somewhere else, some other day, but on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it's about. And Israel's leaders have rejected it. As we looked at, they chose instead to pursue their will and their kingdom on earth, which Jesus believes is leading to disastrous consequences. And by pretending and presenting themselves as speaking on behalf of God, they're leading others to miss it too. And this is what Jesus' second woe builds off of. We read in verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Jesus is talking about evangelism here, which was important for the Pharisees who believed that only their interpretation of Judaism was correct, good, true, and right. Thus, they were avid evangelists. Jesus describes them traveling over land and sea to win converts over to their vision of God. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's setting up an implied question. What happens when someone misses the kingdom, but invites others into their vision of God anyway. If it's not kingdom renewal, what are they inviting people into? And y'all, I've been dreading this part. Jesus continues, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. So let's talk about hell. Now, if you're like me, hearing a pastor even say the word hell makes you uncomfortable. As I shared, I have deep spiritual trauma with how this was used abusively as a child. So hear me. I approach texts like this with extreme trepidation. I know how damaging they can be when they are taught incorrectly. And if you feel uncomfortable, you are not Alone. But it's in the text. We can't avoid it. More, what I have found is that with the right question, study, and context, texts like this say far more and far different things than I was taught as a kid. So I want to explore it in context to try to understand what Jesus is saying. What does it mean to be a child of hell? How do we make someone else one much less twice as much of one as ourselves. And first we need to remove some misconceptions. You see our views surrounding the word hell are deeply influenced by Dante's Inferno and similar works, which honestly are more biblical fan fictions than representations of what the Bible teaches more. So our familiarity with the term makes us assume we know what it means. Ignoring context, simplifying, and paving over a great deal of complexity and nuance. For example, in many translations, what's translated hell is actually multiple Greek words, for they appear just 12 times in the New Testament, alongside and along with related images, usually from the parables, Jesus' metaphorical stories about the kingdom of God, and the apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, which is a can of worms I'm going to open another day. But there are words like Tartarus and Hades, which mean very different things and yet get mistranslated as just hell. The most common term, though, the one that we find here in Matthew 23, is Gehenna, a fascinating Greek word. Ge means valley and Hida means hanam, the valley of Hanam, which was an actual place outside of Jerusalem. One notorious to Jesus's first century Jewish audience. You see, in the Old Testament, the Valley of Anam was where people worshiped the God Moloch, who loved child sacrifice. It became, over the course of Israel's history, the symbol of utterly rejecting God's ways, the most broken parts of our world. Some believe that this legacy led it to become a garbage dump in Jesus's day because they didn't want to do anything else there which meant it attracted wild animals who gnashed their teeth, fighting over scraps. And it was a place where fire burned constantly because in the ancient world, when you don't have dump trucks, that's how you disposed of trash. In both, the same imagery, death, decay, destruction. All to say, Gehenna was a real place that Jesus's listeners knew well. The valley of everything gone wrong The town dumpster fire, a powerful, complex visual for Jesus to reference and good news. It only gets more complicated from there because the New Testament uses Gehenna for different purposes, depending on the context. Sometimes it's used to talk about the justice at the end of God's story. And that's a long conversation we can have over coffee. Just be ready for a lot of Greek and Hebrew and a lot of nerdy conversation, but that's not how it's used here either way. More often, it's used to talk about the brokenness that God needs to remove from our world to restore the overlap of heaven and earth, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. To which you might say, but why such volatile language, Pastor Mike? Can't Jesus just call that stuff bad? To which I would say, no. Some things in our world need the strongest, most loaded language, complex, hard hitting words that reflect the realities they describe. And you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever loved an addict and seen that empty stare in their eyes as you plead with them to get help. If you've ever met a child soldier like I have, ripped from their family by adults and forced to murder, if you've ever watched a prisoner get executed by the electric chair or studied slavery, the Belgian Congo, the Holocaust, as I've heard it put by someone else, I've seen what happens when people reject all that's good, compassionate, humane, loving, and just. Some agony needs agonizing language and some things have to go as part of God's story. And this gets us closer, but there's another piece. You see, it's not a synonym for this word, but sometimes Gehenna is used in the same way for the similar purposes as the Hebrew word Sheol. Now, Sheol is a morally neutral term for the grave, the dirt, where we go when we die. In the Hebrew worldview, everyone goes to Sheol eventually good or bad. No one avoids Sheol, the grave, death forever. But what they did believe was that one could hasten their arrival to Sheol through how they lived. And through how they lived, they could lead others to it as well. You see what the Old Testament authors do is they use the rhetoric of Sheol to talk about two ways of being alive here and now. On one hand, the way of life, that's actually life. Living vitally connected to God as we are intended to. Experiencing and creating peace and wholeness in our lives. Then on the other hand, they talked about the way of life, that's death. That leads to Sheol. Living disconnected from God. Experiencing and creating brokenness, despair, and destruction. When you combine these last two points, you land on how Jesus uses Gehenna here in Matthew 23. Jesus used heaven to talk about life that flows out of entering the kingdom of heaven now, creating healing, justice, grace, love for ourselves and our world. And in the same way, the New Testament often uses Gehenna to talk about what flows out of us choosing its opposite here and now. James, talking about the damage caused by abusive speech, writes, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Gehenna. Jesus does the same thing when he teaches on anger, hate, contempt, objectification, unforgiveness. Using Gehenna to ask, are we building heaven or hell on earth? To talk about who we are now, how our hearts and our actions can have real disastrous effects on our world. Indifference, injustice, violence. Using the most heightened rhetoric he can to implore his audience with the strongest language possible to embrace his kingdom. To let him get the hell out of us here and now. Which makes sense in this text. He isn't talking to non-believers. He's talking to devout religious people. And he's talking about not what happens when they die, but the consequences of their path. Jesus has urged them repeatedly to return to their calling a light to the nations, a kingdom of peace, through whom God shows the world who he is. One that models God's love, which doesn't wield a sword, doesn't perpetuate what's broken our world. But instead, what have they wanted? They've wanted the Messiah to lead them to war with Rome. And Jesus has warned them repeatedly of the disaster that will come if they betray their God-given calling and they try to fight Rome with Rome's tools. Which, they respond to this warning with what? By rejecting him and killing him. And guess what? In 66 AD, Israel revolts and Rome crushes them. They crucify thousands over the course of days. They destroy Jerusalem and the temple. In their blindness and religious hypocrisy, they're leading an entire nation away from the kingdom of healing towards destruction, traveling over land and sea to make children of Gehenna, not peace, building hell on earth. Y'all, I think that deserves the strongest of language. (sighs) But what does twice that mean? Well, think about it. When someone seeks out spiritual guides, what are they searching for? Meaning, purpose, truth. They usually do this when they know that they need something more, usually after great suffering or loss. And they turn to spiritual guides and leaders for guidance and help, for answers, which requires a great deal of responsibility. Because what I've found is this, that if accepted, these people who are searching become fervent, fanatical about pursuing the path they're pointed towards. It's like someone in the desert finding water. They don't just sip, they chug, which can be very good. But what happens when beneath the surface, what they're invited into is broken, hateful, and dehumanizing? What happens when it's something that looks like the kingdom but produces its opposite. Y'all, their fanatical acceptance of what they're given isn't lessened. They don't chug that water less because it's spoiled because it's poison. They become twice the believer and creator of it. You see this with religious radicalism and religious violence all the time. Converts become the largest conduits of destruction because they believed, they trusted those who told them that this is what God wants for them. This is who God is. And in smaller ways, this was me. I rejected those churches, but absorbed their brokenness. I wholeheartedly embraced their fundamentalism as a militant atheist, becoming twice the child of judgmentalism as they were, just directed at different people. I wholeheartedly embraced their anger and resentment towards others, becoming twice the child of contempt, especially of Christians. I wholeheartedly embraced their fear, becoming a child of shame twice as much as they were, hating myself thoroughly. The brokenness became my own and I sought to create twice the hell on earth as was created for me. That only changed when that path of destruction I was set on, of myself, my soul, my humanity, made me seek answers again. And I'm so grateful that I was led to guide, who invited me into something very different. All of the healing and love of God that I have found in my life has come from the fact that they did. That in my first conversation with a pastor since childhood, he told me an utterly broken person, God doesn't hate you, he loves you. That at bottom, I met someone who radiated peace, who radiated love, who didn't try to sell me something and instead just shared his story, telling me the worst things he'd done, how he'd encountered Jesus, And how on the other side, he'd found healing. He'd found peace. And I wanted that. I wanted that so badly. I ran to it. People who humbly invited me to the kingdom of heaven here and now, as it was truly meant to be. One very different than I had been given. And I want to close with some things from my story that point to what it might mean to embrace kingdom integrity and how we invite others into Jesus's kingdom. First, enter the kingdom before trying to invite others into it. We can't invite people into a story of healing that we haven't found ourselves. We must first embrace self-honesty, willingness, and openness about our brokenness and find healing in it before trying to show other people the way there. That doesn't mean we can't talk about Jesus until we're perfect. But if you're just as judgmental, prideful, angry, greedy, unfair, whatever, as you were when you first found Jesus, then what are you sharing? What story are you giving other people? What are you inviting them into? we need to at least be moving towards him to at least be more like him to at least have experienced a little more of that overlap of heaven and earth now before before we try to invite others into it if we're just like who we were the day we found him then i think we risk inviting others into our brokenness instead of his kingdom live the life you want to share Be in relationship, have a disciple relationship, have a mentor, be in a growth group, serve, seek counseling, get help, walk the road of healing first, then share your story. Because again, if you aren't sharing a story of kingdom transformation, you're probably sharing wounds. Second, share the kingdom in relationship with people and honor their story as you would want them to honor yours. The Pharisees saw those they were tasked with reaching as less than themselves, as objects to be won, not subjects, not human beings to be loved, not as equally dignified and complex and worthy as themselves. And when you do that, you turn religion into manipulation. You stop asking, how do I love this person? How do I care for this person? How do I serve this person? And you start asking, how can I win them? How can I make them believe or do what I want them to? And y'all, every time you're going to cause wounds with that mindset. We share the kingdom by living it out amongst others in relationship through how we approach life, our conflicts, our failures, our successes, our generosity. And when we do talk about Jesus, which should come after we show people Jesus through our lives, when we do talk about him, we do so seeing the person across the table from us, believer or not, as a fully fledged and worthy and dignified human being. Not an object to be won, but someone to be loved to be listened to as much as we talk, someone on their own journey with God that needs to be honored. If they say yes, honor their journey, love them. If they say no, honor their journey, love them. You aren't God. It's not your job to make people believe. Just reflect him and love them. Third, and this is the hardest one to do, Stick to your story. You can't control or make others agree with you or have the right ideas. All you have is your story and all you can do is share it. Your story and it's simple, three ingredients. Who were you? What happened? Who are you now? I was broken. I encountered the loving God of Jesus. And that rage that ate away at my soul for the first time in my life began to fade and I began to find peace. That's it. What's your story? How are you increasingly finding the overlap of heaven and earth, entering his kingdom through how you care for the poor in humility, through how you love in an alien way in a world that's often so hateful? Your story how you live here and now, that's your witness. And I promise you, it means more than passing along nice ideas with a religious mask. Stick to your story. So, as we head into communion, I want us to remember and reflect on how Jesus gave himself in love and invited us into his kingdom, the overlap of heaven and earth, his story here and now and how that is good news. I want us to reflect and to ask ourselves, where do I need to lay down my religious hypocrisies in this area and let Jesus heal my blindness? Where do I need to find my own story of kingdom healing, both for myself, but also so we can give it away and take part in God's healing of this world here. And now on the night, he gave himself for us. He took bread, gave thanks to you. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper ended, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out in remembrance of me for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ
1: redeemed by his blood. Amen.